So let's talk about your next patient, the 57-year-old man. He was 57 when he was first diagnosed back in 2006, when he was diagnosed with Gleason 7 cancer and underwent radical prostatectomy, which unfortunately showed extensive bilateral disease, extracapsular extension, and bilateral seminal vesicle involvement, as well as positive margin. His PSA did not normalize postoperatively, and he was treated with salvage radiation therapy. And he did well for about six months, and then PSA started to rise. And simultaneously at that time, he underwent hernia repair, and a biopsy of his omentum at that time showed metastatic prostate cancer. So he was found to have measurable disease as well as rising PSA. He was treated with a combined androgen blockade in an intermittent fashion and had a good response for about three years. But by May of 2010, he showed evidence of castrate-resistant disease. You know, at that point, I started seeing him, and we attempted antiandrogen withdrawal with no response. He was asymptomatic at that time, so I placed him on high-dose bicalutamide while attempting to get approval from his insurance for a T. It took us about a month to get approval, and in that time span, his PSA shot up from about 15 to 42 in just one month. And restaging scans showed extensive bony metastases as well as retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. So given the rapid rise in his PSA, I was very concerned about proceeding with cipolucil T. And as such, I aborted that plan and switched. And he was enrolled in a phase three study of docetaxel plus lenalidomide versus placebo. And he had a very difficult time tolerating the therapy. He received uh, about nine cycles of treatment in total, but required dose reductions multiple times for side effects, including fatigue, dizziness, shortness of breath. And he just had a very hard time tolerating therapy. He did have an excellent both PSA and radiographic response, but he really had a hard time tolerating therapy. And by the end, by the time he got to his ninth cycle, his PSA was starting to rise a bit. And so the treatment was discontinued. He was also started on zolandronic acid for his bony metastases, and because the PSA started rising, he was then enrolled on the expanded access trial for abiraterone, and he's been taking abiraterone now for the last approximately three months. He remains asymptomatic, but unfortunately his PSA has risen with each month of therapy, and at this point his PSA is about 50 so what were your impressions of him today when you met him, Matt? So a guy with a lot of anxiety about his disease, which is quite understandable. He did have a very difficult time tolerating the docetaxel. And this is, of course, part of the appeal of having additional therapeutic options in patients who progress after docetaxel chemotherapy to have a non-chemotherapeutic approach. So I think the choice of using abiraterone on the expanded access program was spot on really a nice option for this man. Unfortunately, as we come to learn, it's not clear yet whether he's having a response to this treatment, but I think a very solid choice for next-line therapy. What would you be thinking about for his next therapy, Matt? So first, I'd want to be sure that he's progressed despite abiraterone before discontinuing that. His PSA has risen, and I believe he has staging scans that are pending. So until there's unequivocal radiographic progression or clinical progression, I would recommend continuing abiraterone even in the face of a rising PSA. So for next-line treatment, I would give a serious eye to other investigational agents uh, on clinical trials or cabazitaxel. 
he really does have sort of the hallmarks of docetaxel refractory disease. He had a response, but his PSA was beginning to rise with his last cycle of docetaxel. And then as you heard, clinically progressed and radiographically progressed within a matter of months after finishing treatment. So I would consider him docetaxel refractory. And if chemotherapy was the next line of treatment, I would favor use of cabazitaxel based on demonstrated survival benefit in that setting. Now, Stacy, does he have symptoms from the disease? No. His only symptoms that he'll complain to you about are from the androgen ablation and the low testosterone, but nothing specifically attributable at the present to this cancer. Matt, what about cipulosal T in this patient? It's not out of the question, but there are several theoretical concerns, and this is why our preference would be to use cell T prior to chemotherapy. So he's now been on long-term steroids along with his docetaxel. He's on concurrent prednisone with his abiraterone. And there are some concerns about immunosuppression and decreasing the efficacy of cell T in that setting. So when possible, we'd like to keep as much temporal distance between cell T and steroids as can be managed. In this case, it's going to be difficult because he's already been on one steroid or another for many months. What's it been like taking care of him, Stacy? He's a really nice guy, but it's sometimes difficult. He comes to his visits with his wife, and they have an interesting dynamic between the two of them, which includes some yelling. And you know, he's a Vietnam veteran and was exposed to Agent Orange, and he has a lot of anger, as well as just general angst related to his diagnosis and treatment. And he's one of these gentlemen who watches his PSA very closely to the decimal point, And as soon as it's changing, sees that as the end of all and needs treatment changed right away. And in him right now, at the place where his disease is, I think that we're getting to the point where following the PSA and just treating the PSA is not necessarily in his best interest, and that's a little challenging to make he and his wife feel comfortable with that. So yelling, that's kind of interesting. In the office? Yes. Wow, interesting. What was it like for you to meet him, Matt? Well, I think that kind of high level of anxiety was reinforced by our interactions. You know, the metrics that we all like to use in evaluating a patient's disease and making therapeutic decisions really are symptoms, scans, and PSA. And in some men who are very anxious, it can be difficult to get an independent read on symptoms. And this is sort of a classic interaction that was repeated today, where you'd ask a patient, how are you feeling? Because we want to know how they're feeling separate from the other data. And they'll say, well, you'll tell me, meaning (laughs) that their feelings are going to be influenced by their PSA and scan results. And so he really falls into that spectrum of men who are particularly anxious about their disease. And that does end up driving therapeutic decisions. You mentioned the possibility of investigational agents at some point for this man. Right now, if he were to come to you, Matt, what are some of the agents that he might be eligible to receive? After the presentations at GEOASCO and ASCO, there's a lot of excitement about a tyrosine kinase inhibitor called XL184 or cabozantinib. This is a dual inhibitor of VEGF receptor in MET and has shown a high degree of activity based on improvements in bone scans. These are changes in bone scans that we're seeing in as early as six weeks, and in some cases, complete resolution of disease by bone scan. There's supportive evidence that this is clinically relevant 
in patients who have had decreased pain or even resolution of pain and discontinuation of narcotics. There's supportive evidence of decreased measurable disease as well as marked impact on biochemical markers of bone turnover. So a lot of excitement in the community about this agent. I mean, it's certainly an attractive agent for further investigation and clinical trials, particularly in patients with bone metastases, as in the case of this patient. Yeah, I heard about that not too long ago from your colleague, Phil Kantoff. And I guess this thing about the bone scans getting better seems kind of unusual in oncology. Is there any thought that in some way this is partly related to imaging or is this really the disease getting better? Well, I think it may be some of both in the sense that the drug is clearly impacting the tumor. We know this because of measurable disease outside of the bone decreases in most patients. So there's really you know, clear evidence of an anti-tumor effect. There's also information that supports a potent effect on bone metabolism with marked decreases in biochemical markers of both osteoclast and osteoblast activity. And I think this distinctive activity we're seeing with marked improvements in bone scans reflects an effect of cabozantinib on both compartments. Where are things right now in the development? So the development has moved along very rapidly. Really, the index case in a sort of phase one, two study design came at ASCO 2010 of a patient with metastatic prostate cancer who had this dramatic bone scan improvement. And over the past year and some months, now we're up to over 200 patients with prostate cancer having been treated. About 85% of patients have improvement, and in some cases, complete resolution of disease by bone scan and the drug will move into two phase three studies in the next six to 12 months. I'm curious, Stacy, how you feel about hearing about an agent like this and the challenge in accessing something like this. It's very exciting. I think a lot of my patients are looking for novel agents, especially a lot of these men, they've come through docetaxel, and although there is cabazitaxel, out there, a lot of them don't want to go, especially when they're not necessarily feeling badly from their disease, they don't want to go on chemotherapy again right away or shortly thereafter. And so they're looking for alternatives. And so it's very appealing. I think access is an issue right now from where I practice. The closest Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City has studies with this medicine, and that's the closest place that I can refer my patients to. But even that, going a trip into New York City is not realistic for a lot of these patients And so unfortunately, I think access is a major issue. Another agent I wanted to ask you about is alpha-radin. So alpha-radin is radium-223. So it's a bone-seeking radiopharmaceutical, very different from the marketed radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer, samarium and strontium. This is an alpha emitter. So it has a high linear energy transfer and a short range of activity. So it delivers this energy over a short range, but delivers high energy over that short distance. And in a randomized phase two study, very small randomized phase two study, showed sort of really some remarkable results in that it had not only symptomatic benefit in patients, but PSA responses and substantial improvements in biochemical markers of bone turnover. A set of observations that simply are not seen with other radiopharmaceuticals in prostate cancer. And that led to the design of a phase three study. And we recently learned in the first interim analysis of that study, the study was stopped because of superiority of overall survival in men who'd received alpha-radin. Have you had any patients who received that? And theoretically, would this patient be a good candidate for it? 
So I have not personally treated patients with alpha-radin. The study that was the phase three study that was done included men who either had received prior docetaxel or were not candidates for docetaxel. So a little bit of a mixed group of patients. And of course, only the top line results have been described to date. So we're all looking forward to seeing the totality of the data, get a better sense where most or all the benefit was conferred. But from what's now known, this gentleman would fall into the latter category of you know, prior docetaxel. So it might be a useful therapy for him if and when it becomes available. What about using chemotherapy after this treatment? Would this be compromised because of bone marrow problems? Well, because it has little, at least short-term bone marrow toxicity, distinct from that of the other radiopharmaceuticals, that phase three study that was designed really can't answer that question because it was either patients who were deemed not candidates for chemo, so they were presumably never to receive chemotherapy, or who'd already had their chemotherapy. But the question you raised is certainly very reasonable, and it's a theoretical concern about sequencing. So in the near term, based on the phase three trial, if the agents approved, we'd be looking to use it either in men who are never going to go on to receive chemotherapy or those who had already received chemotherapy and progressed. Stacy, have you had any experience yourself using radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer? Very little. I have one patient who was on a clinical trial receiving samarium plus docetaxel, and he tolerated it quite well. But mostly I've had patients receive it sort of as palliative care after all other therapy for intractable bone pain, and usually it's one of the final therapies they've received just for pure pain palliation. And I think that approach is exactly how radiopharmaceuticals have been used for a long time in prostate cancer. And part of the reason they carry a certain amount of baggage with them in the sense of they're viewed as sort of treatment of last resort. And so this is what's particularly exciting about the alpha radin data, because it really would change the construct, the way we think about these agents as actually therapies designed to impact the tumor and to improve overall survival. So we're all really looking forward to more information about that phase three trial. Now, this patient's on abiraterone. Matt, can you comment on where we are right now, what we know about this agent and where things are heading? Sure. So the greatest information comes from the completed phase three trial, the so-called Cougar 301 trial, in men with metastatic CRPC and disease progression despite docetaxel chemotherapy. And based on the results of that study, abiraterone is approved in combination with prednisone in the post-chemotherapy setting. It is worth noting that we have a lot of information about it in the pre-chemotherapy setting in that most of the phase one and phase two experience is in patients who had, had not had prior chemotherapy, and clearly the drug has a high degree of activity there. We all await the results of the Cougar 302 trial, which is metastatic CRPC in the pre-chemotherapy space. Uh, very well-tolerated therapy and clinically and statistically significant improvement in overall survival post-docetaxel. So this is you know, exactly the kind of therapy we've wanted to manage this disease for a very long time. Can you talk more about the mechanism of action? In my simplified eyes, in a way, it almost sounds sort of like an aromatase inhibitor, but what exactly does it do? I think that you know, broadly is a fair comparison. So androgen deprivation therapy, either bilateral orchiectomies or treatment with a GnRH agonist or antagonist, reduce serum testosterone levels by about 95%. So you take a typical guy, testosterone's 400 nanograms per deciliter, and you lower it to about 20. And what had been unknown is how important that residual 20 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone were. And a lot of really interesting information to suggest that 
the intratumoral levels of testosterone and other androgens was substantially higher than that in the circulation, leading to an interest in developing drugs that would further lower both circulating and intratumoral levels of androgens. So abradrin acetate is an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, it inhibits CYP17, and further lowers testosterone and other androgen levels to levels that are basically unmeasurable. So you lower by another 90 to 95% levels of circulating testosterone and presumably similar impact in intratumoral levels. We now know that this is clinically important. You achieve PSA responses, clinical responses, and as we've discussed, most importantly, an improvement in overall survival. It's kind of weird in a way, you know, it reminds me of breast cancer in that you can use hormone therapy, the patient clinically progresses, and yet the patient still has estrogen receptors, will respond to another hormone. I guess the way you conceptualize it kind of makes sense. It sounds like these patients are retaining their endocrine sensitivity. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about other approaches in development kind of along the same lines, or at least in terms of endocrine therapy? A couple of names that I've heard is TAC-700 and MDV-3100. Yeah, so these are two agents that are in phase three clinical development. MDV-3100 is further along. MDV-3100 is a potent anti-androgen, so it acts by a completely different mechanism than abiraterone. So it binds and inactivates androgen receptor signaling, binds to the androgen receptor and inactivates androgen receptor signaling, and is now in phase three clinical development. The results of the first phase three trial are pending, studies fully accrued, and the patient populations and study design very closely mimic the Cougar 301 and 302 trials. So this is gonna be a very interesting opportunity to compare side by side studies of similar patient population, similar study design, and look at the impact on disease progression and survival. How would you compare the mechanism of MDV3100 to, say, bicalutamide? So it binds the androgen receptor at a different site, but it is vastly more potent in antiandrogen than bicalutamide. So, you know, very different with far greater expectations about efficacy and sort of phase one and phase two data of MDV3100 that is certainly very comparable to the early experience with abiraterone. So I think there's a lot of interest in seeing the results of those phase three trials and the expectation that patients may benefit from both agents. I think that'd be a great role for sequential. And then there's a lot of interest at looking at combination therapy, given the distinct mechanism of action relative to abiraterone. And what has been seen in terms of side effects? Do you see the gynecomastia that you see with bicalutamine? Well, the gynecomastia with bicalutamide is most prominent when it's used as monotherapy in men who have not yet received androgen deprivation therapy. So tolerability of MDV3100 appears very favorable. It is worth noting that in the early experience, there were a few seizures reported, and it's not yet clear whether those were treatment-related or not. So that is an issue that will be very closely followed in the phase three trial and that would clearly have a meaningful impact about the interpretation of those studies. Are there trials out there, or is there any thinking in terms of trying to combine something like MDV3100 with an LHRH agonist? Most of the studies of MDV3100 in the two phase three trials that are described, they're in men with CRPC, so they're patients who have ongoing treatment with the GNRH agonist. Because of its mechanism of action, MDV3100 could also be considered as monotherapy, 
and there are ongoing phase two studies to address those questions. And what about TAC700? So TAC700 is another CYP17A inhibitor that is a similar mechanism of action to abiraterone acetate. Now, CYP17 has two enzymatic components, a hydroxylase and a lyase. And the relative degree of inhibition of those two enzymes is different between abiraterone and TAC700. So it is possible that there will be differences in tolerability requirement for concurrent administration of glucocorticoids as well as efficacy. So there is interest in seeing the development of TAC700 not just as an alternative to abiraterone, but an alternative with potential meaningful differences in both tolerability and efficacy. You know, it's really kind of interesting to see how much is going on in prostate cancer. And I got to say, you know, not a heck of a lot going on in breast and colorectal cancer as an example. Any explanation for what's going on? Well, we were overdue, right? That's part of it. I mean, uh, there was a long period where there really not much had happened. I mean, one of the sentinel developments was the approval of docetaxel in 2004. And I recall vividly the sort of mixed satisfaction about approval of a drug based on overall survival and great concern that this would ruin any possibility of future drug development, because how on earth could you now compete with docetaxel? And yet what really happened was the recognition that this is a place where there's unmet medical need and that drugs can be effectively developed. And so I think that what we're seeing in recent years with three new drug approvals over the past two years is the impact of the recognition of this being a viable place to develop drugs. And I think that we're going to continue to see a steady drumbeat of progress in this disease, alpha radin perhaps being the next in line, MDV 3100, another one, so there's really great enthusiasm about future prospects as well. I'm curious, Stacy, sort of how you see, you know, urologists relating to medical oncologists now compared to, as Matt was saying, 2003 when docetaxel came out. I think urologists now are more knowledgeable. The urologists that I work with and know about these agents and are now more willing to send patients to medical oncology earlier on. I think for a long time, the feeling was that there really wasn't anything to offer these patients other than androgen ablation and that chemotherapy didn't work. And the urologists were really holding on to these patients for a long, long time. And I think that's been one of the challenges over the last decade or so is to educate the urologists so that these patients are seen by medical oncologists earlier and offer these treatments. And you know, I think with cipolusol T in particular, I think that's a therapy that the sooner we see these patients with castrate-resistant disease, the better, because when these patients have minimal, although they need to have measurable disease on scans, when these patients have minimal burden or volume of disease and low PSA and are asymptomatic, that's where I see the ideal time of getting that treatment in. And when disease starts growing faster or they're more symptomatic, sometimes we're going to lose our window with that treatment in particular. So I think one of our challenges is educating urology to send patients to us sooner, and I think we're succeeding more now. It's interesting, Matt, you know, thinking about that, do you think that there's maybe more of a need to follow patients, particularly with PSA-only disease, closer, trying to pick them up quicker when they do develop meths? I do, for a variety of reasons. First, we have now a series of therapies that improve overall survival and identifying metastases at the earliest point. 
makes for good clinical practice and facilitates sequencing like we talked about. For example, the desire, if you're going to use Cipulus-LT, to use it early before a patient's tempo of disease or symptoms makes other therapies required. And I think that the advances in the field have driven closer collaboration between urologists and medical oncologists. In the past, the medical oncologists would say, well, the urologists send me the patients too late. They send them so late I can't do anything. And the urologists would say, well, I don't send them the patients because when I send them there, they don't do anything. So, and the truth probably lies somewhere in between. And so I think now we're seeing a lot more collaboration between urologists and medical oncologists, and that's likely to continue.